to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. If you have followed Dan Stetler's preaching over the past few decades, then you know that God has certainly had his hand on Dan Stetler's ministry. This sermon is a very serious one. It was preached at the Kansas State Holiness Association camp meeting a few years ago, and it's titled, The Cumulative Effect of Carelessness. I know you're going to enjoy this powerful and convicting sermon. talk to you tonight about the cumulative power of carelessness. Now, since we don't use that word cumulative every day, I probably need to take just a couple moments here and explain what I mean by that word. It means to grow or increase in successive additions. So it's the idea of accumulation putting this with this with this with this. And so cumulative power of carelessness would mean, by that I would mean, that carelessness has a way of reproducing itself and expanding its influence and therefore impacting our lives in ever-increasing ways. And I don't think there's any place in Scripture where there's a more classic example of that than is found in the life of Samson. And that life is recorded for us in Judges chapters 13 to 16. So if you'd like to just open your Bibles to those chapters, I'm going to be reading a number of verses. I won't take time tonight to read any length of, any length of, of Scripture in explanation of this, I'll just tell you the story briefly. Samson is one of those supernatural birth people in Scripture. There are several. John the Baptist was one. Of course, Jesus was one. But Samson was one. His mother was told that she would have a son. She'd not been able to have any children. And she was told that she would have a son by an angel. She was told twice and she was warned in each time, Judges chapter 13, verse 4, and then again in the 14th verse of that same chapter, that this child would be very special and that she, as the mother, was to live very carefully because this son was to be a Nazarite from his mother's womb. So she was not to do any of the things that a Nazarite was prohibited from doing. She was not to touch a dead body. She was not to drink any fruit of the vine whatsoever and so forth. So she was warned 
two times in chapter 13 that this miracle son that she was going to have would be a Nazarite and she was to prepare the way herself very carefully. So Samson was born. Do I have this a little bit close, you think? I'll move it down like this. Okay. So Samson was born. And it would appear that in the very earliest part of his life, if you look at the end of chapter 13, verses 24 and 25, it talks about the Lord being with Samson and he began to develop. And so it seems that all is on course and he is doing well, a specially announced child. His father so wisely said to the angel, how shall we order this child? In other words, how shall we raise him? And the angel gave him very specific instructions. So Samson started off very well. But it's not very long in his life until we begin to see something show itself that is troubling at the very start. And it only gets worse as it goes along. Because we see in chapter 14 of this, of this book of Judges that Samson, once he becomes a young man of marriageable age, he goes down to the city of Timnath. Now, you remember Israel had been divided into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Timnath was right on the border and had changed hands a number of times. And right at this time, was dominated by the Philistines, the arch rivals and enemies of the people of God. So Samson goes down to Timnath and he sees a woman that he likes. Let me read a few verses here. Uh, Judges chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. So it's clear she's a Philistine. He came up and told his father and mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Now, that's a little bit awkward language for us because they did things different. The parents were intimately involved. And he's saying, I like her, and I want you to go with me to talk to her and her family so we can set up a betrothal, or betrothal as some people call it. That is, we commit ourselves to each other. Now, the problem with that is that marrying a Philistine was specifically forbidden by God. Listen to Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Thou shalt not wor for thou shalt worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make covenants with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou shalt eat of his sacrifice. And thou take of thy daughters unto thy... Uh, Excuse me. Thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. So God is saying, don't marry those people. There is a serious danger of them leading you in the wrong direction. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
In verse 2, the Lord, it says, When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriage with them. Thy daughter shall not be given unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy sons from following me that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. So two times in the initial statement of the law and the confirmation of it in Deuteronomy, God very clearly says, don't marry these people. So this supernaturally born son, supernaturally announced son, this young man who is set aside to God, which all Nazarites were. This young man who has been instructed, his mother was instructed even before he was born, and he was instructed from the earliest days of his having ability to understand that his life was to be a life dedicated carefully to God in careful obedience to all of the parameters that were set up for a, for a, a Nazarite. This young man makes this alliance with this young woman. They go down. They meet with her. There's a betrothal. Now, it's interesting that when Samson told his mother and father, chapter 14, verse 3 of Judges says, Then his father and mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all thy people that thou goest to take a wife? of the uncircumcised Philistines. So their parent, his parents are saying, wait a minute, Samson, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. But Samson responds in a way that suggests he was very callous and committed to his own way and careless, to say the least, when he says in the latter part of that verse, Samson said unto his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. So something's wrong here. Samson, you shouldn't be choosing this Philistine woman to be your wife. And your response when your parents protest about this doesn't say a thing about God, doesn't say a thing about his prohibition in the law. It just says, I like her, you get her. I wish the, the pattern of carelessness, carelessness could stop right there in Samson's life, but unfortunately it doesn't because he and his parents go down to the city of Timnath and on their way down, they come to the vineyard area and out of the vineyards comes a young lion and Samson is attacked, but the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he grabs that lion and kills it with his bare hands. He tosses the body off to the side and goes on to arrange the betrothal to this young woman. Now when he comes back to actually have the marriage sometime later, a good bit of time later, he stops by the vineyard. His parents go on walking and he goes over to look at the dead body or the dead carcass of the lion. But the scavengers of the animal world, the sun, the other influences have decayed the meat 
and the carcass is cleaned. In fact, bees have made a, a hive in there. And Samson somehow gets some of the honeycomb out of that carcass. And as he goes along, he eats it. And he gives some to his parents to eat. But he doesn't tell them where it came from. Chapter 14, verse 9 says, And he took thereof with his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother. And he gave them and they did eat. But he told them not that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. There's a reason why he didn't tell them. Because now he's not only ignoring God's law, he's breaking his Nazarite vow. The vow says, don't touch anything dead. But Samson decides he likes honey, just like he liked that girl. And just like he said, get her for me, he said, I'm going to get it. And he brushes aside any kind of careful living with relation to the law and with relation to the covenant that he had made as a Nazarite. It's interesting that as you look at this, you, you actually see the first carelessness setting the second opportunity up. He went down to make an agreement to marry that girl and killed the lion on the way. The agreement set it up so he comes back later to claim her and in the process, he's going by the lion. Now, had he never gone to Timnath to begin with, the lion wouldn't have attacked. He wouldn't have killed it. It wouldn't be laying over there. The bees wouldn't have made honey in it. But one carelessness paved the way for another carelessness. And so Samson shows the careless attitude of his life by turning aside, taking the honey, eating it, giving it to his parents, and not telling them where it came from. It would appear that Samson began to reap some harvest of his life. Because if you look at Judges chapter 14, verses 10 to 20, you realize that when he got back there, and he they started the wedding celebration, there was an obvious tension between him and the Philistines that were there either as her family or the representation of her friends. And this, this tension, this competitiveness spikes and Samson offers them a riddle. And then they stake the results of that riddle. And the results are very high. They're to give him a number of changes of, 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 of garment. And in that day, in that part of the world, Nice clothing was very expensive and valued very highly. You may remember the story. Those Philistines began to put pressure on his bride-to-be and said, if you don't tell us, we're going to burn your father's house with fire. And so finally she caves in and she tells them what the answer to that riddle is. It has to do with the lion and the honey that came out of its carcass. Samson knows instantly that he's been compromised. And in anger and in reaction to what they've done, 
he goes and kills 30 men, takes their garments and gives it to them. Then he, he catches foxes, ties their tails together, set them on fire, and turns them loose in their, in their grain fields, which are just ready to be harvested. Needless to say, the implications are swift, they're powerful, but Samson goes on his merry way. As a matter of fact, that leads us to the third instance of Samson's carelessness. Because chapter 16, verse 1 says, Samson left there in a rage and went to Gaza. And he saw there a harlot and went into her. And that word harlot means exactly what you think it means. So now Samson, who was careless about marrying a Philistine, and Samson, who was careless about his covenant in taking the honey and taking it out of the dead body, that same Samson is now certainly compromising deep moral principle because he goes into this harlot. I need to tell you tonight that when the pattern of, of carelessness begins, this is where the idea of the cumulative power of carelessness comes. One incident by itself, you might say, well, he, he was young, he got his, he got his eyes on that girl, and, and she was apparently beautiful and very attractive to him, and he made a poor, made a poor choice. But obviously, this pattern of carelessness with relationship to what God would have him do becomes a direction. And these things begin to weave together in Samson's life. And now he's with his harlot. And chapter 16, verse 3 says, Samson lay till midnight and arose at midnight. They, they came to surround the city to capture him because of the escapade that took place in Timnath. They're going to get him. He's killed 30 men. He's taken their garments and given it to those guys. He's burned down their crops. So they're around the city. So he lay till midnight with the harlot, and he arose at midnight and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the hill that is before Hebron. Now that's really, that's really, really important. Because here's Samson, who has messed around with the law through carelessness. And Samson, who has messed around with his Nazarite vow through carelessness. And now Samson, who is messing around with moral failure through carelessness. But Samson is still incredibly strong. Samson is still doing amazing feats. He picks this, this entrance, the entire entrance up, and carries it up and sets it on the top of the hill. How do you, how do you explain that? What do you say about a man who's just spent half the night with a prostitute having the God-given power to carry off that gate system for that community. 
Well, I don't know that I have all the answer to that. I do know this. I know God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. And the Bible says the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And I've known some men that were called to the ministry that compromised and went the wrong way, but they never lost that gift of speaking. They never lost that ability to sell a product to people. Samson didn't instantly lose his phenomenal strength. Can't get sidetracked here, but I remember so well a young man by the name of Dennis who went to our church. He too began to get careless with various things in his life. I was troubled. I went to his house and talked to him. I talked to he and his wife and, and nothing I said could slow the process and it just went on and on. He'd been our youth president. He, he, he resigned that job and it was good that he did because I would have had to ask him to resign the job and, and changes began to come more and more and more rapidly in his life and eventually they began to lay out a church from time to time and I'd been good friends with him, worked closely with him and it just tore my soul out to see what was happening in their life and I'll never forget the day I got the call that Dennis and Sharon had split up. She'd taken the boys and left. He was still in the house and it was right down the road from me. Went down to his house and Dennis came to the door. He had on a pair of blue jean cutoffs and that's all. And he looked at me with kind of a smirky, sarcastic look on his face. And he said, hey, imagine seeing you. Come on in. I went in. I'll never forget, we stood at the bar in the kitchen. And Dennis reached over and got an apple and pulled out a big old pocket knife. And he said, would you like some of this apple? And I said, Dennis, I'm not really hungry right now. Oh, well, that's fine. Okay, well, I'll eat some. And he began to cut off pieces of the apple. And I was torn up. I said, Dennis... I'm scared to death with, what, with what's happening in your life, your family's life. I'm scared to death. It just seems like we've moved from one crisis to another and it's got bigger and bigger and bigger and now she's gone and you're here. He looked at me with that smirky look still on his face and he said, Ah, Reverend. He leaned on the counter and leaned over to the edge and he said, I thought, I thought when I started this way that I'd just kind of fall off the edge. But he said, I haven't fallen off the edge. I haven't fallen off the edge. I said, well, Dennis, I'm, I'm not here to talk to you about falling off the edge. I'm here to talk to you about what is happening in your life. You were our youth president. You were a spiritual leader in our church. I know what God did for you and your wife. We spent hours of time with you. His wife had a ceramic shop. And one Christmas, my wife and I chose to 
give Christmas gifts out of her shop and she let us come out there and paint and do all the work involved and things like that. I said, we've spent hours with you guys. But I said, you're, I feel like you're just slipping through my fingers. He said, ah, oh, man, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. All of us make choices and we've got to live with the choices that we make. I didn't have any choice but to walk out of that house knowing I hadn't gotten to first base with Dennis. And the truth of the matter was, I hadn't. I can only imagine what Samson's parents are thinking. Oh, where's our boy tonight? Where's our boy tonight? If they knew he was down in Gaza with a Philistine prostitute, what would it do to those parents who had prayed so earnestly for a child and had an angel come and announce his birth to them? What would it make them think about their efforts at raising him? Where's Samson? Oh, he's down there sleeping with that prostitute. He carries off the gates of the city before it's over send an army after them and he takes the jawbone of a donkey and slaughters them. You know what seems to happen? It seems that Samson gets this invincible mentality. He lets things in the here and now confirm in his mind what is not true between him and God. He convinces himself, I'm okay. Look what I'm able to do, man. I carried off the gates of that city. He's, I felt that same wild surge of strength when I picked up those gates and carried them up that hill. I felt that same wild surge when I took the jawbone of that dead donkey and slaughtered those Philistines. But the story doesn't stop there because in verse 16, verse 4, Right after we read about the prostitute, we read about another woman incident with Samson. And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and said unto her, Entice him, and see wherein his great strength lieth. And by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And we will give thee, every one of us, 1,100 pieces of silver. All of the lords of the Philistines are saying, we're each one going to give you this phenomenal amount of wealth. And Delilah said to Samson, tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength liest and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. Now right at that point, I want to say, Samson, are you nuts? Did you hear what she said? Where does your strength come from? And what would it take to bind you so you could be afflicted? Samson, did you hear that? I'm sure he heard, but I'm also sure he had a reckless confidence 
born of a life of carelessness, which made him ignore the obvious warnings. Because she asked him that. And he says, well, if you'd bind me with this. And she does. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And he pops that restraint like it's not even there. And she comes up and caresses him and says, oh, Samson, you don't really love me. You lied to me. And I want to say, Samson, what on earth are you doing here? You're a Nazarite by vow. You were announced by angels. Samson, you were raised right. Your daddy asked for instructions and received them, and they raised you that way, Samson. What are you doing here? But had I been able to ask, I'd have, I think he'd have said, oh, don't worry about me. Whatever she wants to throw out there, whatever I give her, I can handle it. And so she asked him again, and again, and again. Chapter 16, verse 16 says, It came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged them so that his soul was vexed unto death. Instead of walking out the door and leaving this woman who is trying her best to enrich herself and destroy him, Verse 17 says, he told her all his heart. Now, you know, when you look at this, you could think Samson maybe didn't know what the source of his strength was. But the fact of the matter is, he knew exactly. Part of the Nazarite vow was that a razor was never to come on his head. God had set that up. Why he chose that, I don't know. But Samson knew that at the heart of everything was that vow that he had already violated. And so he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, listen to this, then my strength will go from me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. He knew. He knew. But what does he do? Here he's told her the secret. He doesn't know that the lords of the Philistines have agreed to pay her this enormous wealth. But he should have been able to figure it out. I mean, the woman tries everything he says, and her, her, her trigger for his reaction is, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And pow, he breaks that restraint, and it's like it's nothing. But listen to what happens now. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, 
she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come, come up at once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. So she got the promised wealth. And she made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man. And she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him. And his strength went from him. And she said, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. The cumulative, cumulative power of carelessness. Now, Am I saying there's anybody here tonight that is headed for sleeping with prostitutes? I certainly hope not. Having an affair with a woman named Delilah? I certainly hope not. So how does this apply to us? Let me talk to you like this. When carelessness begins to come into our lives... We're confronted with decisions. Very seldom do those decisions ever involve big, monumental, earth-shaking things. They're often edgy, borderline stuff. And we get banged around. Maybe your parent and your kids get to be teenagers and they start saying, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? They do it. They do it. You have confidence in him, and he lets his kids do that. Why can't I do that? You know, a lot of times we haven't done a very good job of explaining the basic principles of why we believe what we believe and why we live the way we do. And so parents feel very handicapped well, our church doesn't do that. Well, what's that got to do with it? I thought you're supposed to live by the word of God, not just blindly follow a church. Well, that's true. Well, don't you think they're good people? Well, yeah, yeah, I think he's, I think he's a good man. I think they're a good family. Well, they do it. Well, we'll be real careful. You know what? I want to say this as kindly as I can tonight because I'm not here about being mean. But very often when we say we're going to be real careful, we're being careless right there. We're being careless right there. Is she the only woman you can find? There's nobody in all of Israel, nobody in any of our brethren's house. I like her. Get her for me. And so his parents... Go along. Now, am I blasting those kids for asking? No, asking is how you learn. 
A two-year-old child will ask you questions until they'll drive you batty. I know I have a two-year-old grandson. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why does that happen? Why do they act like that? How does this work? I mean, when you're around that boy, it's a non-stop barrage of questions. But that's how they learn. And there's nothing wrong with questions being asked. But pastors, let, let me look you in the eye tonight and say, we have a solemn responsibility to be faithful to people, to help them understand what it means to be a holy person, what it means when God's word says this or that or the other. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if you're worth your salt, you don't want to just be blessed God, we're again everything. There's no future in that. You stretch a rubber band far enough, it'll break, or it'll snap back and burn you up. But you know, very often, we as pastors and leaders have not equipped our people very well. And the only thing I can say is shame on us. Shame on us. One of the reasons you ought to be a calling pastor is if you go to people's house and sit down and take time with them, these things will come to your attention. They'll be saying, you know, our kids are asking us about this. What do we say? That's when real pastoring starts right there. Maybe it's at work. I had a dear friend talk to me recently about an issue at work. And, and I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. Because I heard him rationalizing. I heard him giving me these weak reasons for doing what down inside he doesn't feel good about. Friend, now I say to you tonight, if we begin down the road of carelessness, what happens when we're here? We have the right and the left. And we get nudged. Let's say we get nudged left. And we end up not going clear over there, but going here. But now what happened is our right is moved and our left is moved. And then when you go to Timnath and you kill that lion, you're probably going to want to take a look at it. And wouldn't you know, it's just like the devil to have a bunch of bees because he knows that you love honey. That's the way he works. He knows you. Better than you know yourself. And so, I mean, what's it going to hurt? There's no flesh on this. These are just dried bones. This is just a carcass. The bees wouldn't be here if there was any stinky flesh left on it. And so, you don't move clear over there. You, you just move here. But now your right has moved and your left has moved. And this next time you take a bigger step, this is, this is, this is not, 
an issue of just, <sighs> is that a dead carcass? Is that a dead body? Or is it just a frame or whatever? Now, it's a bigger issue. But you know, when you've, when you fudged here and you fudged here and you fudged here and you fudged here, the cumulative power of carelessness has built you a big rope. And that big rope binds you. And your kids are liable to look at you and say, Dad, you remember back there? You remember here? You remember here? Come on, Dad. Get in the 21st century. You know, you can take this outside of the church. We see culture wars going on in our society like you would not believe. And you hear things like, the mainstream of society says it would be a catastrophe if Roe versus Wade was overturned. You know what? There was a time when everybody and his brother was over here about Roe versus Wade. Hillary Clinton was over here. Bill Clinton was over here. Everybody was over here. But now, the media says, oh, Mr. Kavanaugh, whatever his name is, is way out of the mainstream because he might overturn Roe versus Wade and the mainstream. That's exactly what I said. You have a left and a right here. You have a left and a right here. You have a left and a right here. You have a left and a right here, and we're not done. We're not done, friends. Unless God visits us with an awakening and an outpouring of his spirit, it'll be here and here and here. And well, we got a left and a right here. I have a dear friend who's part of a mainstream church that is a part of our heritage. Bless his heart. He's fighting for the truth. He's fighting for right. He's against Gay pastors being ordained in their church. And I want to say, friend, your, your critical issue is way over here. Are we, going to, are we going to ordain gay pastors? Look how much ground we've covered to get here. You know, Samson is a rare person in the Bible because he got a chance for a redo. I can only imagine what it was like to grind in the prison house. I can imagine, and this is my imagination, that the little boys and girls would come and he could hear them talk. See, that's the Jewish strong man, but we got him. Our people are tougher than he is. And they'd throw rocks at him or hurt him as he's pushing that arm around turning the grinding mill. Samson's eyes are gone. He's never going to get them back. So when those mean little kids are cruel to him, he can't even find them. He can't do anything but roar in rage. And, and he's chained to the, to, the, to the grinding mill. You remember, they're going to celebrate his capture. And so they get everybody in this great, great building, all of the lords of the Philistines, all of their families, all of their rulers. Samson's hair has begun to grow. 
And you listen to this pathetic prayer of Samson. He says, Lord, one last time. One last time. Oh, God, one last time. And he says to the boy, son, would you put, your, put my hands on the chief supports of the building. He knew enough about architecture to know if he took those out, the whole house would fall in. The roof was full. The inside was full. And the boy unwittingly put Samson's arms on the pillars that hold up the house. And they're mocking him and his God. And they're cheering at those who captured him. Samson bows his head and breathes a prayer and brings the house down. We teach that story of Samson to our little children. But you know tonight I need to talk to somebody besides little children. I need to talk to you young people tonight. Listen, listen, please. Remember, remember, if you begin... If you begin to be careless, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. It's a progressive thing. The devil will see to that. And he'll always find stuff that's not really black or white, especially at first. And then the further you move, the more your sense of clarity is skewered. Until, until you don't know anymore. Well, it's not as bad as, and it's, it, you know, there are a lot of people doing it, and man, I get so frustrated. I show me my chapter and verse. And here we go. And finally, we're clear over here. And nothing matters. And you could tear those pages out of the Bible, they don't even speak to us because the cumulative power of carelessness has bound us just like it bound Samson. You know the sad thing? Parents, you won't get a do-over with your kids. You get one shot at raising them. One shot. Use that one shot well. Be careful. Love Jesus. Stay close to him. If something in your spirit says don't, don't get caught up in the show me book chapter and verse legalism. That's exactly what that is. Follow the nudge of the spirit in your heart. Be careful. I travel a good bit. And what I'm seeing scares me to death. I'm not a radical person. I will not plead guilty to that. I'm not a person who thinks careful living is going to get you to heaven by itself. Because I don't believe that. But I'll tell you what, I'm really worried. I'm really worried. I'm really worried because 
as we move from one generation to the next. Things really do change if we're not careful. I was so blessed and privileged to live in a home where my parents were so sane and sensible and sensitive to the Spirit of God. And they didn't always give me satisfactory answers. I was a good arguer. I always was a good arguer. And I could push them in the corner. And when I got done pushing, my mother and dad would say to me, and by the way, they didn't backstab each other. Mother never compromised dad after he was gone. And dad never compromised mom because my sister was daddy's girl. You start down those roads and you throw away any hope, any hope of accomplishing anything. We spent time together. We had family prayer together. We would eat together. Almost every night of our life, we ate together. And those eating together times were times a thousand times. Maybe I'm stretching, but I'm not so sure. Where it's, Dad, why can't we do this? I can't believe you guys won't let us do that. And my mother's answer so many times was a sweet, gentle, yet firm, I'm not raising their kids. I am raising you. She didn't blast everybody in sight, but she was unwavering. And you know what? I've gotten up in the night before to go to the bathroom and heard my name being called in prayer. I remember when I was going through a really, really turbulent time. We went to Grandpa and Grandma's house, and you prayed whether you were a Christian or not. Everybody knelt around the living room. And Grandma called that couch over there a divan. And one time it had had fuzzy stuff on it. But the fuzzy was all worn off. And there were ridges that had made the designs. It was a rough old piece. They didn't have a lot of money. And I was kneeling over there. And it came my turn to pray. And I whipped off some little canned prayer. Thank you for a good day. Thank you for helping us and take care of us. Watch over through the day tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. They knew I wasn't a Christian. I knew I wasn't a Christian. And I got around the, got around the grandma. And grandma began to tell God on me. Not me. She was all broken up. She said, there's Danny. He's a good boy, Lord but he's having trouble right now. Lord, Lord, don't let the devil have Danny. I'm right over there. As a matter of fact, I'm scrubbing my face in the rough surface of that old divan because Grandma is taking me to the throne room. Nothing wrong with that. It's part of the reason I'm a Christian tonight. Felt really frustrated when I came in here. Not, not that I'm throwing off on the memorial service. Please don't misunderstand. I just felt like this is what I should preach. And I felt like I'm not going to have time to say it. 
but God has helped me, and you've been so gracious and kind. I'm not here to bash anybody. I'm not here to punch or knock anybody. I'm just here to get in the middle of the road and say, whoa, folks, whoa, folks, whoa, folks, <laughs> please, please, let's stop and consider. Let's stop and consider. Some of you mom and dads need to realize that you've moved from there to here, but your kids have moved from here to there. And their kids will move the Lord only knows where. I just want to say, Whoa, 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 please. Please stop and consider the cumulative power of carelessness. It weaves into a rope that binds us and can destroy us. It's late tomorrow, Sunday morning. And I, I'm confident I preach what I should have preached tonight. If I have been offensive in any way, I want to tell you I am so sorry. Because God's not offensive. God cares for you. God cares for us. He doesn't want any of us to be lost. And I don't want to get in the way and say anything that could come across as harsh or negative. So if I have in any way shared before, I am so sorry. You just chalk that up to me, not God. But I feel like tonight I've done the best I know to deliver my soul. I didn't just come to McPherson Camp this year because you called me again or because you have really, really good food or because you have really, really nice facilities or because you pay very well. All of those things are true, but I didn't come for those things. These summer months of my life, I look forward to. I look forward to because... I feel like when I went to Hope Sound, God said, part of your ministry is to preach in revivals and camp meetings and talk to people. And tonight, God's given me the privilege of talking to people from a lot of different places. And I just want to say to you, wherever you come from, whatever your background, wherever you are, please be careful, will you? Don't let carelessness, don't let carelessness a rope that drags you off track and causes you to facilitate the loss of your own family or other people's family or the movement of a church or a denomination. Don't do it. Please. Please don't do that. I'm going to let you go. It's late. But I want to pray with you before we go. Can I do that? <laughs> Oh, God, we're just people. So very, very often we don't know the way. So very often we feel overwhelmed. Tonight I felt so overwhelmed, Lord. I didn't know how I was going to say what needed to be said. But you've helped me, and this wonderful congregation has been so kind. But Lord, I want to pray for every young person tonight. These kids are growing up in a world that is just overrun with moral relativism until nothing is for sure right and nothing is for sure wrong. 
Oh, God, would you put a hedge around them? Would you put a hedge around them? Would you keep them true to Jesus? <laughs> would, you, would you keep them true to Jesus? Would you help them to love God with all of their hearts and live holy lives? Lord, you said if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I would pray that you would draw them to yourself and let you speak to them, Lord. And oh, I know you will be faithful. I pray for every mom and dad tonight, every mom and dad of teenagers, every, every young couple that's trying to decide what they're going to do. Maybe the babies have not started or maybe they're very young. But the pressure's on, Lord. You know that. You know that. You see what we face. And young couples are feeling the pressure, Lord, to, to, to be careless. And the devil plays it to the hilt. Help some of us that are older, Lord. There's probably not a person here with hair the color of mine that doesn't look back across life and see. I've made some mistakes. <laughs> I've had some poor judgment at times. But, oh, Lord, help us at this stage in life not to give an uncertain sound on our trumpet. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall be called to battle? I pray for every pastor tonight. Lord, you know the pressure to succeed, to grow, to count numbers. <laughs> oh, God, you know the struggle that a pastor goes through when people say, well, they have all these activities for kids and we have nothing. Our group is small. Oh, God, would you surround them with yourself? Help this camp meeting. Lord, this camp meeting has been a source of help to hundreds and thousands of people. And now this price has been jacked up. You know all about that. But Lord, <laughs> we need some of these institutions. We need some of these circumstances just like this. I pray in Jesus' name that you'd help us. Lord, I want to pray in closing tonight that you'd help me to have a kind spirit. Lord, there have been some times in my life where I've really missed it there. I've thought winning the argument was the most important thing, and I've hurt people sometimes, and I've wounded people sometimes. And in so doing, I've probably helped the devil. Lord, help me and us to have the spirit of Jesus Christ. To have the spirit of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're never firm. Jesus was when he ran them out of the temple. Jesus was when he rebuked the scribes and Pharisees. But oh, you love people. You love people. Help me to do that, Lord. Thank you for helping this crowd to be so kind and so faithful and so stay with me as they have. Would you take this tonight in the spirit that it was intended and speak to every heart here. In Jesus' name, and we'll give you praise. For we ask these things in the wonderful name of the one who loved us so much and gave so much. <laughs>
and has done so much for us. The precious name of Jesus, our wonderful Lord. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the fire I don't want to lose the fire